So for me, it was always a question of, am I thinking about giving up because this is toxic or am I thinking of giving up because it's too hard and I don't want to try? And if it's the latter, then I should try. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Rosie Thor began her career as a storyteller by demanding to tell her mother bedtime stories instead of the other way around. She spent her childhood reading by flashlight in the closet until she came out as queer. She lives in Oregon with a dog, two cats, and an abundance of plants. She is the author of Tarnished Are the Stars, Fire Becomes Her, The Meaning of Pride, and Life is Strange Stuff Story. So please welcome Rosie to the show. Hello. Hi. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here. We're going to talk about your journey to publication today, and we're going to start by going all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing, and how long did it take before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? Well, I've been like storytelling, I would say, since before I could write. I really grew up in a creative household. My parents are both creative individuals. Um, My mom plays the harp and my dad builds harps for a living. (laughs) So I was very much encouraged to pursue my creative endeavors, which was a huge, I mean, I I feel very grateful for that. But my mom and I used to do bedtime story time um, every night before bed. And she would always tell me stories based on like, little pictures that we had in like fairy calendars and stuff. They had Mm. like those fantasy paintings in the calendars and I would make her go through and tell me the stories, but she would always mess it up. So I would correct her and then I would take over the story. (laughs) So it's, it's always been like very much a part of who I am, but I would say that I didn't start actually writing until I was, I would say about in fifth grade is when I really started writing like stories. I definitely wrote like a epic fan fiction play of this like kids book series, The Jewel Princesses when I was in second grade and like made all of my friends play different parts of like I wrote the script and then made them all play different parts for everyone to watch. It was absolute chaos. But (laughs) the first actual like novel that I sat down to write was in fifth grade. I wouldn't say that it was fan fiction of any particular fandom. It was more like fan (laughs) fiction of my own life. I like cast the different characters as people that I knew. So like the villain was my fifth grade teacher who I didn't like, who I I feel like I'm about to get in trouble for even saying it, but his name was Edward Curtin. And so (laughs) I named the villain Edward Drapes because I thought that that was like really (laughs) clever and that no one would notice. And then of course I I gave it it to him and asked him to read it for feedback. I don't know. He didn't didn't seem to notice, but (laughs) um, (laughs) yeah. So that was like the first real, like it had chapters and like, it was written in like big bubble letters. So it was very charming on lined, lined paper that I got from my school notebook. So, you know, mm-hmm. really, really cool. But I don't think I really got serious about publishing and, and really realizing that writing was a job that you could have until I was in like late middle school or high school. And I actually attribute it all to Marie Lu, who at the time was unpublished and was still a teenager, actually. And I followed her blog. Um, She had this like website up where she was giving updates about her progress in her books. She was she's also an incredible artist for Mm. those who don't know. And I I found all of her art on like DeviantArt back in the day. And I so I followed her and she had all these little comics about how to get a literary agent and how to get published. And those were like my first introduction into this industry and how it works at all. 
And it was just fascinating to me. It was like an immediate like obsession. I had to learn everything I could about publishing. And about that time, as I was like really inspired by Marie Lu, and this was this was when she was still writing like like high fantasy. I think it was like high fantasy for adults. It sounded really cool. I wish those books were out. I'd love to read them now. <laughs> Around that same time, there was a website up called inkpop.com, which no longer exists. It was run by HarperCollins. I and I think it was like, it. yeah, it was part of their like marketing arm for young adult literature, I think. I don't really know exactly what the the aim was with it, but um, I got really involved on there and I met a ton of friends, some that I'm actually still quite close with who are published today. If anyone's familiar with Marissa Cantor, uh, who writes contemporary mm. rom-coms and A.L. Graziati, uh, who writes gay rom-coms as well. Um, they're great. And I met both of them through Ink Pop back when we were like 15 years old. And so it's it's kind of like this cool little bubble of a bunch of teens who are all trying to get published. And that's, that's, again, where I learned the bulk of what I know about the publishing industry. And I ended up writing a full novel because of that website. There was like this competitive element to it where you put the novel up and if you get into the top five, you get like critique from a real HarperCollins editor. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to get that, but I'm going to, I'm going to get it when I have a full manuscript. I'm not going to send them just like five chapters. I'm going to make them read the whole thing, which in (laughs) retrospect, like how terrible is that? Like, (laughs) um, (laughs) so some poor HarperCollins editor somewhere read my first novel and I'm so sorry to them, whoever they were. (laughs) So you talked about Marie Lu's comics, but how else did you learn about the publishing industry? Like how it works, how to query, how to go about it, that kind of thing. I would say the internet really was huge for me. I never, like, I didn't go to any workshops. I learned everything that I know about publishing through Google. And <laughs> I know that that's kind of kind of a silly thing. I, I, it feels very silly to say, but the number one piece of advice I have to anyone who's looking to find out about the publishing industry is Google. Just Google it. Like, half of the questions that I get from people that I teach or that I work with um, in coaching and stuff like that, half of them are things that I learned just by typing it into Google and being like, gee, what do people on the internet have to say? Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely read a lot of Query Shark back in the day. Yes. And then I was very lucky to have a couple of friends who had explored the publishing industry before me. Um, these are people that I met through Ink Pop as well, actually. And they had a lot of knowledge about how the publishing industry works. And also they knew a lot about mentorship and they pointed me towards Pitch Wars. And that's what I ended up doing. Um, Pitch Wars, for those who don't know, is uh, this kind of competition to get a mentor to help you with your book. And I ended up submitting back in 2016 and I got in. And that was a huge Mm -hmm. crash course for me in publishing and revision and how, how to do all of the steps to get a book ready to query. Perfect segue. So then what happened? Can you break down for us your journey from then to sending your first book contract? Pitch Wars was, I I like to think of it as like a boot camp. It was the most intense experience of my life, which is a wild thing to say. I had to rewrite my book twice in the course of three months. So I, I think Pitch Wars now no longer exists, but the last couple of years have been a longer timeline. And I think mine was one of the last years where it was that shorter timeline. Mm-hmm. You really did not have much time. I've never had a deadline that tight before in my life. It was really a masterclass in revision, but it was also the, I would say, the most important lesson that I learned throughout my entire publishing experience has been that failure is part of the process. And it's okay to fail. And Pitch Wars really taught me that. I rewrote my book from start to finish 
based on my mentor's notes and I sent it to her and she read it and came back to me and she said, it was one of the most gutting things I've ever heard. She said, did you just decide not to do my edits or did you not understand them? And it was crushing. Um, And I can say all this with love because we are still very, very good friends. Um, We talk to each other every day, probably my best friend in publishing. So thank you, Lindsay. Um, She's wonderful. (laughs) Lindsay Miller. But yeah, it was it was incredibly crushing. And I had three weeks left before the showcase. And actually, it wasn't even before the showcase. It was I had three weeks until the deadline after the showcase to send materials. After the first week of that, the 2016 election happened. Mm. And so it was quite a trying time, shall we say. And I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I just kind of blundered my way through. It was 80,000 words. It's way more intense than NaNoWriMo. And I do not recommend it to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have like spots in my memory that I don't remember. Like there are, there, I was at a writing retreat um, with, bless them, uh, Beth Revis and Kristen Terrell, who are wonderful, wonderful teachers. Um, and I went to this writing retreat with them through their wordsmith workshops. And they were so wonderful to me. And they were like bringing me cups of tea as I was doing this and checking in on me and like giving me pep talks. But I have these like little blackouts of memory from that entire week. And and I can remember things like sitting by the side of the pool at the giant Airbnb that they had rented with like a whole chocolate cream pie and just like eating it out of the pan with a spoon. <laughs> um, so it wasn't a good time. Um, and I finished the revision at a Quiznos off the freeway at like 9 p.m. I finished writing like the last or it was it was the climax of the book that I wrote. Mm. And then I had to drive the rest of the way home. I, it was like five hours away. And so oh. that was the day that it was due. I stayed up until three in the morning to finish it and <sighs> sent it to my mentor again. And the next day I was like a complete zombie. And thank God she was like, yeah, this is fine, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did end up sending those queries out. And through Pitch Wars, I think I had like 12 or 13 requests, which was fairly good for that year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard back from absolutely none of them, mm. which, you know, is kind of typical. Um, It takes a long time to hear back. But that gave me time to rethink the book a little bit more. Mm. And I actually revised the first act before I sent out any other queries. And really, before I sent out any other queries, I did Write On Con, which is an online writing conference. Mm -hmm. And at the time, they had a forum where you could put your pitch and like your first five pages and all of that and get critique from other people. And so I put it up there. But at the time, there was also like agents floating around and they all Mm -hmm. had secret identities and they could request material if they wanted to. And I got a request from one of the mystery agents. And I was like, well, that's shocking, but exciting. I'll get to try out my new first act and see how that goes. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, I'm I'm a Capricorn. And so, of course, I made a spreadsheet um, of all of the agents who were involved in Write On Con. And I looked at all of their wish lists and I was trying to figure out who it was because they didn't tell me who they were oh. until like they weren't going to tell me until the end of the weekend. And I was going to mm-hmm. wait to send until I knew who it was. And so I was trying to narrow it down and I was able to narrow it down by like looking at the wish lists. And there was one agent who I knew it couldn't possibly be because she didn't <laughs> represent science fiction and fantasy, but otherwise I didn't know anything. And that was Saba Suleiman, who if 
you're paying attention is my agent. (laughs) And she actually requested and I was totally shocked. I was like, this is a mistake. She doesn't, she thought she meant to request from somebody else. And so when I sent her the query and everything, I like put it in the, I think I put it in like a PS. I was like, I noticed you don't represent my genre. So if this was a mistake, it's okay. Or something like that. I don't remember. (laughs) But after that, I kind of like got a little bit of courage and sent out a couple of queries, but I didn't send out very many. I think in total, I probably sent like 20 maybe. Then I got my offer about a month later. And so I, I was totally shocked. I was I was anticipating um, Saba has this reputation, as she very much deserves, of being incredibly detailed with critique. And mm. so everyone I knew who'd ever queried her and had gotten a rejection said that her rejections on Foles were like incredible. They were always really detailed. They always gave really good actionable things that you could do. And I was like, great, I'm going to get like an awesome critique from this, this agent. And then I'll be able to move forward and like do more querying. And so when I got a reply from her, I was having a sick day. I was homesick from work. I got the, the email saying that she wanted to set up a call and I totally panicked and was like, oh my God, like this is happening. And I didn't know what to do. So thank God it was a sick day because I got to stay home and not have to work (laughs) super hard. I was like barely working. Then we had the call and it was just wonderful. She was great. I'll say this because it's been, you know, six years almost. It will have been six years by the time this airs. (laughs) Um, And Saba has been an absolute dream to work with. I could not imagine working with anyone else. She's just the best. And Mm -hmm. I feel so lucky to have found her, for her to have found me, because I never would have queried her myself because Mm -hmm. she didn't represent my genre and she was totally not on my radar. At the time when I got the offer, I was really nervous because she didn't represent my genre. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, I don't know what to do if like, should I say yes? And I was like, of course you should say yes. She's great in all other aspects. Like you've talked to her. She's wonderful. Like This is going to be great. But I actually like had a contingency plan, which was like, We'll work together for a year. We'll put the book on sub. And if it hasn't sold after a year, which is hilarious to me now, (laughs) but if it hasn't sold after a year, reevaluate and see if everything seems to be going well with working with her. Otherwise, then we'll stay. But if like things are iffy, if there's any sort of like questions that you have about it, you can leave and you'll have another book written by then. Mm -hmm. Um, So after a year, I had no other book written. Um, But luckily, we actually sold the book. (laughs) And so I didn't uh, have to enact my my contingency plan. And I wouldn't have anyway, because after probably like three months of working with her, I knew that I had lucked into something really incredible. I have a lot of friends who have horror stories about publishing, who have horror stories about being with the wrong agent, being with an agent who doesn't respect them, being with an agent who doesn't encourage them. I've had recent friends who have agents who are screwing them over financially. And it's just, I mean, it's like landmines out there of trying to find the right agent and knowing that you you won't know if someone's the right fit until you work with them. Mm-hmm. But I knew within, I, I would say within weeks of working with Saba that she was the right fit. And I'm so, I just feel so lucky that, that she found me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we sold the book after about six months on sub. Uh, mm-hmm. We did a little bit of revision before going on submission And then we went out to a round of, I think, like 10 editors and mostly got rejections. And then my agent uh, was at a conference and she met an editor or she'd met an editor who really liked some of the same media that we both like. It was actually Avatar The Last Airbender. 
Um, <laughs> I had I had made Saba watch it. It was like one of those shows that I I talked about loving on the call, and she was like, oh, "I've never even heard of it" or whatever. And I was like, "Okay, Saba, your homework while I do my revisions is you have to go watch Avatar." <laughs> and so she did, and she'd met this editor who also really liked Avatar, and. They were like got along great at the conference, but you know the joke was that she was never going to have anything to send him because he only does science fiction and fantasy. Mm. So then she signed me, and the book is ready to go on sub. And she was like, "Hey, guess what? I have something to submit to you." He had just started at Scholastic, I think. It was it, it hadn't been very long. He'd only been there for a few months, I think. When he he got back to us pretty quickly that he was going to take it to second reads and then acquisitions, and it was like a month in between each step of the process. And then he and I ended up talking on the phone just to kind of get a vibe check to make sure that we would work well together. Um, his biggest, like biggest edit notes that he even had, like the thing that he seemed to think was the most important thing for us to be on the same page about before he took it to acquisitions was that he wanted me to change the title. And <laughs> I was expecting to change the title, which is fine. Um, however, I have continued to pitch him books with the original title with a different story attached multiple times <laughs> as like a kind of joke. And he keeps telling me this is never going to happen. And I keep thinking, you just wait. I'll write the right book for this title. I really want to um, know what the title is now. <laughs> uh, well, so the title was Through Gilded Veins. Oh, okay. And obviously, um, the title now is Tarnished Are the Stars. Yeah. So it's it definitely went through that that process of, we went through some title workshopping. Then he ended up acquiring the book. It was probably like a couple months later. It had to go through the winter slowdown of publishing. I went to acquisition, the first acquisitions meeting of the new year. It was two days after my birthday, and I was sick once again. Uh, I had another sick day and I was home homesick. And that's when I got the call from my agent that they wanted to buy the book. So I, what I've learned through the process is that I should have more sick days because good news comes on sick days. <laughs> so it's funny because as an agent, the projects I've sold have come when I'm in the middle of a hurricane or I'm in the middle of another hurricane or I have COVID. And I'm like, I could I just get one like in normal, healthy times? <laughs> yeah. It's like disaster strikes and the universe is like, ah, but to soften the blow, here's a book deal. <laughs> I, I knew it was coming. It was either going to be a yes or a no. And so I, I think I had worked myself up into like stress. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, sick, sick days really are the theme for me. I actually got sick the day my book was announced also. The announcement went live and then like we had a little celebratory dinner with my friends and we all went out to dinner. And as soon as we got to the restaurant, I walked in and I went, uh oh, I'm really ill and I need to go home immediately. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, and then I went home and I was sick for like three or four days after that, yeah. just, like down for the count. I don't know if it was stress or, or what, but it was like my body just shut down. It was like, no, thank you. We're done now. So just to clarify, because I've been trying to get numbers on this for the podcast, how many books would you say you wrote before you signed with your agent? This was my third book that I wrote. Okay. However, that comes with like a major asterisk because I rewrote the book so many times Yeah. that I would say that by the time it actually published, it was probably like fifth or sixth book if we really are talking about <laughs> like full book. Yes, it has the same basic idea, but the rewrites were significant. Can you read your successful query letter for us? 17-year-old Anna is an outlaw mechanic. Nathaniel's father wants her dead. On Earth adjacent in the year 2892, Anna works cog by cog to make up for her first failed surgery, donning the moniker of technician to supply black market meditech to the sick and injured. She sees the commissioner's laws against tech as more of a challenge than a threat, even if she is the commissioner's most wanted. 
But Anna's grandfather is convinced it's only a matter of time before the commissioner comes looking for her and their entire village of tech users. Even with a clockwork heart, Nathaniel has never had to fear the law. Determined to earn his father's, the commissioner's, respect, Nathaniel sets out to capture the technician. But the more he learns about them, the more he questions his failing tech heart keeping him alive and whether or not his father's elusive affection is worth chasing. When Anna discovers the commissioner is behind her village's epidemic of heart defects, she must convince Nathaniel to turn on his father in order to save her village. Together, they have the chance to unify and cure their people. But if they cannot overcome their differences, the commissioner will stop all their hearts. Through Gilded Veins is a young adult science fiction novel with own voices bisexuality. Complete at 85,000 words, it will appeal to fans of Legend by Marie Lu and Timekeeper by Tara Sim. Awesome. I love how Marie Lu shows up <laughs> again in your query letter. Yeah, it felt like a must, um, but it yeah. also does have like that same sort of like cat and mouse vibe that June and Day have in Legend. Um, that, mm-hmm. that version of the book definitely had that. So how has your experience been since signing that first contract? Especially let us know if there's like anything that surprised you along the way. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that surprised me along the way as far as like how the publishing industry works. I would say like the publishing industry is not transparent. <laughs> and so there's just a lot of stuff that goes on post-signing of the deal that we really don't talk about, things like waiting for a contract, things like what do different clauses in the contract mean and and what will they mean for you down the road? So there's a lot of stuff that I didn't understand then that I do now. You know, I, I wish that I'd understood it better before because then I could have asked for the things that I knew would matter to me. Back then, I didn't know what was going to matter to me. And it is different for every author. So your agent can only go so far on certain things unless they know what you want or what you need. And so there's definitely things that I wish I had known. There's a lot of stuff like, you know, how, how do foreign rights work? How do audiobook rights work? Um, how, how is all that going to come together if you get deals and if you don't? And so, you know, there is that danger of like selling your, your rights along with the book to your publisher and then your publisher not utilizing them, which is what happened with my first book. Those foreign rights were never utilized and now I have them back. So hopefully we'll be able to do something with them now, but it's three years later and who knows. So there is definitely that timing thing. But there's other stuff like I didn't know how payments were going to work. I didn't know how editorial timelines worked. There were so many new words that I was learning about the different steps of the editorial process and how they work. So, you know, that that first time that you have a book coming out, I feel like, at least for me, I learned how to publish a book also. It wasn't just mm. learning how to revise it. It was learning the lingo of publishing, learning what is and is not okay to ask for. And there's so much that goes into that, that by the time you're doing the second book, you already know all that stuff and you can really focus on the book. So half the battle was really just learning how to do publishing. I think one of the biggest surprises for me, which now I think is very funny, is that the timelines of things are so wonky in publishing. (laughs) The wait times are absolutely wild. Any other industry would crumble under these kinds of wait times. I have friends who are in other industries, like I have friends in the tech industry or who are lawyers. And every time I tell them like, oh yeah, no, I'm still waiting to hear back about that. And it's been like three weeks. And they're like, how is how are, how are these people not fired yet? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's just how publishing works. Everything is slow. It's not that they don't want to reply to me. It's that they don't have an answer. And that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's really long wait times to hear back on pretty much everything. Uh, the wait between getting the deal and getting the contract is really long. The wait between getting the contract and getting paid is really long. 
And the wait between uh, getting the book deal and getting to announce the book deal can be very long. It's all just very like hurry and wait up, you know? Yeah. Hurry or hurry up and wait, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that's the biggest surprise has been just how slow things can be. Now it is time for author DNA. It's our quick round. Just classifications that we like to put writers in. Are you a pantser or a plotter? Little both. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Overwriter. Do you like to write in the morning or at night? At night. When starting a new project, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? Character. Do you prefer coffee or tea? I prefer coffee, but I don't drink it anymore. So tea. It's very sad for me. When writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Music. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Get it right. What tools or software do you use to draft? I like Scrivener and Google Docs. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Whichever one I'm not doing right now. <laughs> That's a more common answer than I thought. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Uh, sequential. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? I'm an extroverted introvert. All right. Now we're going to talk about the second cue of the podcast. What were some of the qualms or worries that you had on your journey? And do you feel like they were realized or you overcame them or how did they shake out? I was really worried about, you know, a lot of things that turned out to not matter at all. There's a lot of discussion about things like choice in publishing. And a lot of the advice that I got from people was assuming that you would get multiple offers from an mm. agent or multiple offers mm -hmm. from a publisher. And that has not been the experience for me. I have had one offer every time. So I absorbed a lot of advice that I didn't need. <laughs> and maybe I'll need it down the road. I would say that I was probably just totally focused on the wrong things. Things that I was worried about were like, well, what if my editor wants to totally change the vision for the book? And I don't <laughs> agree. And like, that just didn't ever happen. Yeah. Um, the things that I worry about now are very different. Things like, where is my next book deal coming from? Um, and <laughs> and when will I get my next paycheck? The things that I would say are the most relevant worries that I have, like things that I think about a lot are, where is my creativity going? Mm. Because I I like to always be in motion with my learning. Um, I don't like to stand still and and stagnant. And so I want to stretch my, my, I want to stretch myself. I want to find the next thing that is going to teach me something creatively. And I find myself a little bit stagnant, especially right now. There's a lot of ups and downs when it comes to creative self-esteem, I would say. You know, you can find yourself in a rut pretty easily. I think those of us who have been anywhere near querying know that a single mm -hmm. rejection can take weeks off of your productivity versus a compliment which can, you know, boost you for like 30 seconds. Uh, we take our rejections and bad reviews yeah. and and all that very, very intensely. And I, even as a published author, some people are surprised to hear that I get rejected all the time. And it is hard to recover from that kind of rejection, even with people in your corner. You know, I have mm -hmm. an agent who I absolutely adore. And, you know, I've always had a lot of support, you know, editorially. And being in a position where I feel like whatever I'm writing isn't good enough or whatever I'm writing isn't the right thing for the right person at the right time, it can be really discouraging. And 
you know, even, even now I experience that perhaps even to a higher degree than I did before, because mm. there's so much more at stake for me now than there was before, before it was like a pipe dream to get published. And now I've done it and I want to stay published because it's how I make my living. You know, there is that, that balance there. And I think, I think the biggest thing that is a, of concern, you know, in my career now is really about that, about that creative energy and trying to capture it and make sure that I'm or I'm, I'm refilling the well creatively, but also that I'm doing something with that creativity that's worthwhile. And that's a hard balance to hit. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been thinking about it a lot lately in anything, but especially it's, I think, I feel like it's very noticeable in book publishing. If you get 10 really positive comments and then you get one negative comment, that one negative comment is the one that you're going to be thinking about for days. But I've kind of internalized that a little bit to where I'm like, if I'm going to critique something, like, does this really need to be said? You know, do I really need to, to say this? Cause sometimes it is like in the guise of helping someone, but sometimes humans just critique things because, you know, they want their opinions out there. And now I'm like, is this going to be the comment that like ruins someone's day? <laughs> I don't want to do that. You know, I think about that a lot. I do my best to avoid any sort of reviews or anything like that. I really don't read them unless it's like a trade review that's sent to me by my publisher, but it sometimes finds you anyway. And yeah. one of my first experiences with that was absolutely gutting. And I, I won't ever forget it because it, it made me rethink how I want to critique work in, in mm -hmm. the public area and whether I whether I want to and, and when is it worth doing. And it was when a mutual on Twitter, so somebody I followed who followed me, who we'd been friendly, we'd done a couple of blog things together, wasn't another author, but it was somebody who I thought I had at least an acquaintanceship with, live tweeted a hate read of my book. Oh, and it came across my timeline because I followed them. Yeah. And it was it was really tough for me um, to see that because, you know, it wasn't like we were friends, but we'd had a few interactions. And I thought, you know, I deserved a little bit more respect than that of, you know, mm -hmm. at least, you know, soft block me first, you know, like make force me to unfollow you before you start mm -hmm. doing that, because then that that saves me the heartache of seeing that. And they didn't put the title of the book. Um, in the tweet, but I knew it was me because they were like had pull quotes and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and were mentioning things that were only, could only refer to my book, and they were things that like I I read those tweets and I thought that's fair, that's a fair critique, and that hurts almost more than an unfair critique. I've mm -hmm. seen reviews of my books that have unfair critiques in them or critiques that I find <laughs> deeply funny. There's one, and I again these just they found me i didn't go out to find them but there's one that called the queer platonic partnership in my most recent book fire becomes her a and i quote stale romance which i thought was very funny <laughs> um but you know it's like that sort of thing doesn't get to me because yeah. i i say oh okay well i reject the premise of that and that's fine and if that's your opinion then that's fine and i don't have to worry about it but when it's somebody that you know it just hits so hard and yeah. And even if it's just somebody that you respect, even if you don't really know them personally. And so mm -hmm. I have chosen not to engage in critique publicly unless it's something that like is really harmful specifically. Yeah, um, same. But yeah, I think I think it's something that I want to leave in the domain of readers and reviewers. While I am a reader and have been a reviewer, that's not my primary role in those public spaces. I'm an author first, I think. Yeah. And so I just, I, I realize that I have a lot of reach and that there may be people out there who like me and don't want me to hate them and <laughs> that I should, you know, try to not be a jerk. 
yeah i try to use my energy to promote the books that i do like yeah it's funny though because i did get a review um for one of my books where it was like oh this main character really hates guns and they (laughs) like they were saying like it was a negative thing and i was like oh thanks yeah yeah i do i do get i will say i do get um some homophobic reviews um Mm -hmm. but mostly they're just funny to me um i try to i try to have a good sense of humor about it although they do occasionally cut deep and i did once stumble across like a off-brand reddit thread for like gender essentialists who were kind of picking apart me as a person and Mm. they found my picture book um, the meaning of pride and then they started like picking apart my bio and like my presence online and like my author photo. And they just, mm-hmm. it got really personal really fast. And a lot of it was like, I, I felt I felt like I was on the cusp of getting doxxed if I was at all m- more famous. And I, I will say that, you know, to some extent, my midlistness <laughs> has been a blessing and that I'm not on the radar of a lot of those people who are really militantly going out against queer books and you know, trying to ban them and stuff. I haven't appeared on any banned books list yet, but it is, it is one of those things that like, I I haven't had that happen to me. And I know that that's not, it's not a compliment. It is dangerous and it is scary. And so having had that happen just even a little bit was like, oh, this is really terrifying. So now we're going to talk about the third cue of the podcast. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that seems different or interesting or unique? Um, my immediate answer is absolutely not. Of course not. Um, why would I be interesting? Um, but I think I think something that um, has been interesting for me, at least, to discover is the way that my writing quirks have mirrored my study quirks, essentially. Um, so growing up, you know, I was very I was very into school and I did a lot of schoolwork, but I had uh, extracurriculars after school, and so I did all of my homework probably after like seven p.m. And so as an adult writing, I have found that my brain has been wired to be creative and diligent and like do work in the evenings, Mm -hmm. uh, which worked out really well when I was also employed full time. But now that I'm doing writing and freelancing and stuff, it has not worked well for me uh, because I (laughs) try to be done with the job by 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of just we kind of weirdly trying to undo all those like very I'd say like instilled habits that I have I've had to kind of undo those and purposefully rewire my brain which is really tough but also I have ADHD and so for me focus is like this elusive gem like I'm trying so hard to find that focus and if I find it I just kind of have to go with it uh, if, if I'm inspired at 4 a.m I have to get up and and do it I've learned mm-hmm. that I can't do the whole like, oh, I'll remember it in the morning. That's just not going to happen. And I also, even if I did remember it in the morning, I wouldn't have the focus or the energy to accomplish what I was going to do. So I do have to kind of let my brain dictate when I work. And that's kind of tricky. When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, whatever that may have been for you, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? I think for me, the, the lowest parts of my journey have been times when the question is, do you just give up or do you push through? Mm-hmm. And I have always been a push through kind of person. Um, I've I've never given something up because it was too hard. I think that this is coming from a place of within, I guess, a couple of months of really starting to publish or to pursue publishing seriously, I made the decision 
to quit uh, a hobby that I had been doing for many, many years in a, I, I kind of like to think of it as a previous life, but <laughs> about seven years ago-ish, I was a professional swing dancer. And oh. I was doing it. Uh, I was competitive. I was the all-star level competing. I was kind of being pushed at all sides to like kind of take the next step and start doing professional routines and make a make a goal of getting into the champion level, which is the highest you can do in that particular sport. And I was sort of on the cusp of, am I going to go for it or or not? And around that time, I had finished a draft of of tarnished and I wanted to submit to pitch wars and I made myself this this deal that was if I got into pitch wars I would take a break from dance and at the end of pitch wars if I missed it I would go back because it felt like this thing where I I didn't feel like I was thinking about quitting because it was too hard I think I felt like I was maybe thinking about quitting because it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing mm-hmm. it was this deeply patriarchal heterosexual world that did not allow me any time to pursue writing which is what I really wanted to be doing and so I had just come off of quitting that for what I felt was like a very good reason, which is that it was not fulfilling. It was sapping all of my energy and it was actually forcing me to hide from myself more. I, I wasn't able to be myself. So that didn't feel like an option because writing wasn't doing that. Writing was creating this space for me to be myself. It was invigorating. It was creatively exciting to me. And so it wasn't that it was a bad space emotionally. It was that it was hard. And I wasn't willing to give up because of that. And I've I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of people give up on publishing. The people who have given up, who I have always felt like that was the right choice for them. It's because I saw them become someone else through publishing, through writing. They stopped being themselves. They stopped enjoying the craft. They stopped feeling like it was worth their time. It felt mm-hmm. to them like this thing that they had decided to pursue and that leaving meant that they failed. But I actually think that giving up on something that isn't fulfilling, that isn't creating joy for you, is actually a step toward finding what will. And so that's Mm -hmm. not a bad thing. Um, So for me, it was always a question of, am I thinking about giving up because this is toxic? Or am I thinking of giving up because it's too hard and I don't want to try? And if it's the latter, then I should try. Because the only thing I have to lose there is something that you know is is a goal but it's not the dream the dream is to write and enjoy writing the goal is to be published and so that's kind of a balance that I found do you feel like you made any mistakes along your journey that you might want to warn listeners about so they don't make the same ones so many so so many (laughs) um I think that one of the biggest mistakes and, and this is maybe not the answer people are gonna be looking for but one of the biggest mistakes that I've made in publishing to date is engaging in the wrong kind of community. Hmm. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of people in publishing who will treat you as though the only value you hold to them is what you can give them professionally or Mm -hmm. what you can bring to them in terms of like gossip or information. And I found myself in circles where that was what I was being valued for and it made me feel like garbage. It was the worst I have ever felt maybe ever in any sort of friendship situation. Mm -hmm. And just know that publishing does not have to be like that. When people say, well, everybody talks shit about everybody else, that's not true. They're saying that to basically justify what they're doing. And there's a certain amount of, you know, venting that you need to do in this industry. I get it. It's hard. There are times when things will be really rough and people are treating you badly. But if that is the only way that you're engaging in community, that's toxic. 
that's the biggest mistake I think I've made along the way is allowing those communities to hold any sort of value to me mm-hmm. and engaging in them in those ways that I found to be really toxic. If, if anyone is coming to anyone, I think, with advice in, in a way of like, I have all the answers and no one else can possibly help you. Again, that's, it's going to be toxic and they are doing that on purpose to isolate you. And so just any sort of like emotional abuse tactics that you might see in relationships were also present in publishing and it will happen. And just, you know, try to be cognizant of what you're engaging with and and like what sort of energy you're putting out into the publishing world and try to make it a good energy, <laughs> which yeah. Um, yeah, is much harder than it sounds because there's a lot of people out there who are trying to kind of stir the pot and create gossip and share tea and everything. And Mm-hmm. Yes, there can be a little bit of enjoyment in that, but at the end of the day, if that's all you're doing, then you're just going to kind of be in this cycle of toxicity. Yeah, I think sometimes when that's one of the first communities that you develop where it's built on this like negativity, uh, you don't realize that there are communities out there that are built on positivity and they are probably much more healthier and supportive in the long run. Exactly. And I think that that kind of energy can be very prevalent in querying communities or in debut communities. I, I think <laughs> as weird as this may sound, my, my best advice is to diversify your friendships, which sounds really like <laughs> cutthroat and like, <laughs> like, why did I say it like that? But like a but finance is, bro. <laughs> yeah, I feel very finance bro. Like, let me tell you about my NFT. Um, <laughs> are you interested in crypto? <laughs> but you don't have to only have one friend group and it is okay to have friends across the board in, in different areas. Because that will give you more spaces to hold different energy. And Mm -hmm. I think that it can be really, really easy to get stuck in a community of only people who are at your current stage of the process. And if you aren't engaging with people who are at an earlier stage of the process or at a later stage of this process, then you are isolating yourself to one mentality or one kind of group of mentalities. And And that can create this sort of negative cycle of everyone is feeling rejection at the same time. And that's really hard. And I know that it can be tough to stick with a friendship through somebody else succeeding and you continuing to fail. I know that that's really hard. And I've lost a lot of friends myself, you know, when I felt like I was jealous and I couldn't handle it or vice versa. And that's, it's really hard, but, you know, trying to hold space for that, you know, excitement for the other person and just being okay with that and knowing that, the process is different for everyone. And trying to maintain those friendships is, I think, really important because that will give you more, I think, more space to see where you can go in the industry and also remind you where you came from in the industry. So just, you know, don't cut people out because you're not at the, the same stage is kind of my thinking. So that's a perfect lead in to the next question. I I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people who helped you along the way and how? Um, Well, I would obviously I need to first thank my parents for no. um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that the the person who has been the most instrumental to my entire publishing career is actually no longer in publishing. And I don't know where she's at. But Kara, if you're out there, I appreciate you. (laughs) She was someone who learned the publishing industry before me. And was the person who taught me 
most of what I know about querying and she's had many agents and, you know, gone through the process multiple times. And it's, I know it's been a struggle for her. We kind of fell out of touch after a while. She got more into like fan fiction writing and I think she was having a really good time with that. So we ended up kind of parting ways, but um, we've known each other since we were like 14 and she's been absolutely wonderful. She's the one who kind of introduced me to Pitch Wars. And then of course, Lindsay Miller, um, who's the author of the Mask of Shadows duology, uh, Belt Revolt, What We Devour. She's doing some Disney Prince books now. Um, she was my mentor in Pitch Wars and is just absolutely the best, has taught me so much and and really you know stood by my side through some of my worst failures. So she's great. Of course, my agent, Saba, is absolutely wonderful. I love working with her so much. But I'll also kind of throw a little shout out to another agent who I did not work with, who did not offer and uh, was actually who rejected me and then has supported me so, so diligently since. And that's Eric Smith. Um, he has been one of the biggest supporters of my work and has thrown opportunities my way, even though I'm not his client. And I just appreciate him a great deal. He has really good advice and is one of those people who is just really incredibly positive and supportive and been a, a light for me in the community for sure. Before you go, you have a book coming out next week. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I do. Uh, my next book is Life is Strange Stuff Story. It is the first novelization uh, or first prose novel in the Life is Strange fandom. They are video games. So they're kind of like choose your own adventure video games about people with powers that allow them to manipulate the world around them. And my book is about uh, one of the love interests in the third game, Steph, who is an out and proud lesbian. Uh, it's a prequel about her um, from her years living in Seattle when she was in a punk band. She has a really super cool punk trans girl girlfriend who's awesome, a community of queer baristas who she's friends with and a D&D group that she plays with. And it's all about her story of discovering who she is and figuring out what she wants from a relationship, from life, um, leading up to the events of the third game, where she is in Haven Springs, Colorado, as the radio DJ of this very tiny, tiny mountain town. Mm. <laughs> so it's it's very fun. It's got super chaotic queer characters. It has a lot of like nerd stuff. And of course, there's like punk band goodness. So um, I hope people like it for new fans or, and old. I hope it's a, it's a fun journey for people. Nice. Thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your story with everyone. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Rosie's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash share Nicholas. That's there with an H and Nicholas with no H. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.